Hello, lemons and jelly beans. Welcome once again to another episode of Sarah Mara, the Horror Fan Podcast. This is episode hashtag 148. I am one of your hosts, Simon. I'm Lee. And today we are going to be talking about two things. We are going to be talking about Frankenstein from 1931, directed by James the Whale. And we are also going to be talking about... James T. Whale? The fall of the house of Usher. of Usher. Spoiler alert before we get there. Mike Flanagan, you okay, hun? <laughs> okay, babes. You're right. PM me, mate. Like, um, what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about Frankenstein first, and then probably the last fifteen twenty minutes of this episode, maybe more, depending on how far we go will be about the fall of the House of Usher. We appreciate that's because the fall of the House of Usher has only just come out on Netflix and people may not have had time to watch it yet. So rather than doing that up front and people potentially risking spoilers or having to skip through any part of the episode, we'll do the Frankenstein bit first. You guys can listen to what the bulk of the episode is meant to be about. And then if you want to stick around and listen to the fall of the House of Usher stuff, by all means. Um, If not... Then you can just turn off after the Frankenstein thing. We'll timestamp it as well, just in case you're yeah. here to have Fall of the House of Usher and not Frankenstein. The Fall of the House of Usher, Usher, Usher. Mate, my man's been in a couple of horror movies, you know. I know. But we're not talking about that yet. We're talking about Frankenstein. This is my confession. No. The Frankenstein released in 1931. Yeah, two years. Did we do our names? Yeah. Oh. Two years before uh, Jimmy Whale did uh, The Invisible Man, which uh, is what we talked about last week. Well so, uh, this film was written by... Are you ready? So, it is based on a composition by John L. Balderston, adapted from the play by Peggy Weblin. The screenplay was written by Garrett Fort and Francis Edward Farrog. Scenario editor was Richard Shea. Contributor to treatment was Robert Florey. And contributor to screenplay construction was John Russell, based on the novel by Mrs. Percy P. Shelley. <laughs> also known as Mary Shelley. Mary Wolfenstroft Shelley. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, directed, as you said, by James Whale. Uh, Casting-wise, we have Colin Clive as Henry. Henry Frankenstein, not Victor. Apparently you can't do Victor in Depression Era America, but there we go. Uh, May Clark as Elizabeth. John Bowles as Victor Moritz. Boris Karloff as the monster. Edward Van Sloan as Dr. Waldman. Fred- Frederick Kerr as Baron Frankenstein. Dwight Fryer as Fritz. Lionel Belmore as the Burgomaster. And Marilyn Harris as Little Maria. I love that she's credited as Little Maria. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. We have an estimated budget for this, which was two thousand two hundred ninety-one thousand dollars, and apparently it made gross worldwide one thousand six hundred twenty-six dollars. <laughs> Still not entirely convinced these figures are correct. Mm. Um, Plotline-wise, Doctor Henry Frankenstein is obsessed with assembling a living being from parts of several exhumed corpses. I mean, that's the opening of the film, I guess. <laughs> What's that? song is it grave robin usa what's the fucking song on the murder dolls track where they do the fucking grave robin, robin. usa because it's which the... opens with them doing a the little like skit yeah like 
um, he's like, oh, me first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is so bad. Ah. Oh. I wondered how long it was going to be. It's precisely four minutes before I brought up fucking murder dolls. I mean, to be fair, it's only because we heard them today for the first time in probably quite a while. Yeah. I haven't listened to murder dolls in a long time. And we went into a we went to visit our tattooist today. And she was listening to fucking Kill Miss America by the fucking murder dolls. I was like, you're right, babes. Uh, big shout out to Wednesday Thirteen for being one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. I love that man to pieces. There we go. Um, right. We should probably start with you, because mm-hmm. I feel like your thoughts on everything Frankenstein are going to be a lot more consolidated and a lot more uh, in and out they than are. mine are. So, go. So, I have attempted to read the Frankenstein book a couple of times. I have never made it very far. And I have never finished it. because you're a bad feminist. <laughs> I mean, Sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's just, um, it just doesn't interest me, but I feel that way about a lot of, like, classic horror literature, like, I don't particularly like Dracula, mm. so I feel like it's a, it's a fair across the board, that one, I just don't really like literature that's old. I mean, that's not true, you're literally reading an Edgar Allan Poe book, That you? is true, I'm very picky. <laughs> and you like Shakespeare. That is true, I do like Shakey, <laughs> Shakey's B. What do they call him, Shakey P? No, they refer to me as Shaky P in Six, which is my yeah. favourite thing. Um, but yeah, no, I've never, really got, I've never really jived with Frankenstein. I think the concept is really interesting. And I think it's badass that Mary Shelley wrote it at 19 and is basically the mother of modern horror. I think that's really fucking cool. Um, but yeah, I just don't like it very much. Mm. And the film has made me feel no different about that. I think it's weird that in the last two years, mm-hmm. we saw where it was written. We have. Where she lived for a bit. Yeah. We went to the exhibition and saw a bunch of like stuff. And then a month ago, just over a month ago, we actually went and saw where she was buried. We did. Uh, next to a weather spoon. Yes. <laughs> which is named after her most famous creation. Yeah, which it's is called the, Frankenstein. Which is the maddest thing. It's like, mm-hmm. oh... There's Mary Shelley's grave. Beer at a pint. Yeah, free uh, Burger at a pint, sorry. Burger at a pint. <laughs> Bless oh, you. excuse me. Um, so, yeah, we've kind of, like... We've seen a lot of stuff that's, like, historically very relevant to this book. Yeah. And that's like, mainly down to me. Pretty much. Pretty much. The amount of shit that I go through regularly because stuff you like is very high. <laughs> very, very high. We're going to go and see the Hellraiser house and... Week. Oh no! Depends on how far our is, because I don't know how much or how how into it I am. If it's really far, we should hold it. We should hold a poll. <laughs> we could go and see the bus stop that's got the Hellraiser VHS on it that keeps reappearing. <laughs> we we could do that. That's um, but an yeah. option. So you're not yeah you're not a huge fan of this. So it's needless to say. I think maybe of the five films that we're covering this month, maybe this was the one that you were the least looking forward to seeing. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe that's fair. That'd be a fair assumption. That'd be a fair assumption. So, what what is it about the story that you don't like? Honestly, I'm not a huge horror fiction fan anyway. It takes a lot for me to enjoy a like, horror fiction book. Mm. I'm quite picky. And I just, I don't know, I just never jived with... Sorry. Excuse us. 
uh, it's just never really jived with me. Mm. You know? I don't know. Yeah. Plus, I'm really picky with books from that era because I do find the language to be a little bit, like, overly flowery. Yeah, I get that. Um, I mean, of all the Stephen King books I could recommend to you, I would never recommend Revival because of this because Revival is heavily inspired by um, Mary Shelley and by Lovecraft. And it's really un- it's a really unpleasant story. Yeah. But yeah, I I think it's like I think it's I think we should get the obvious things out of the way first when we talk mm-hmm. about this film. I think it's mad that James Whale directed the probably the second most significant thing that H. G. Wells wrote after War of the Worlds. I mm-hmm. think War of the Worlds is more important to him than what Invisible Man is. Mm-hmm. I think that's just personal preference maybe, but I think culturally it's probably more important. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was credited as being the father of sci-fi, even though we said last week he lived like ninety years. He was born like ninety years after like fucking Mary Shelley was mm-hmm. like died, and then she's credited as being the mother of sci-fi. And James Whale like directs these two really significant films based on really significant works by the arguably two of the most influential sci-fi slash horror writers. Of all time. I mean, you could probably argue that. I don't know how people would agree with you. Um, but I also think it's very telling. Um, and this is probably where we're going to lose some listeners. But I don't really care, to be honest. I also think it's really interesting and really significant that James Whale, um, as a gay man at that time, chose to direct these two particular stories. Mm. The Invisible Man about, you know, not being seen by people... You know, the the madness and the mania that that creates where you live in a place where people can't see the true you and who you are and mm-hmm. having to deal with that. And then obviously, if you look at Frankenstein's creation, obviously a similar sort of subject of living in a society where you are feared, you are shunned, you are hunted, you know, as a minority. You know, I think anybody, you could use the creature character as an avatar for a lot of things, like people with mental illness, people with like, you know different sexualities different like backgrounds things like that and that that place in society and how we fear the things that we don't understand Mm -hmm. and prejudice and things like that obviously and it's not to imply that any of those things are you know monstrous characteristics but it's obviously the way that they are viewed in modern society this is is kind of i think the issue i have with some film adaptations of frankenstein not this one so much because I can kind of see the direction they were trying to take. I just don't think they did enough with it. In the book, the creature is not a monster. No. The creature is misunderstood, unloved. People are automatically scared of him and he reacts with his fear and yeah, violence. Yeah, he reacts like, accordingly. Because that's, well, the thing is, is the first thing he really sees from humans is violence. Yeah. So... He's a child. Like, his immediate reaction would be to react to things with violence. That's all he knows. Yeah. And I think in a lot of the film adaptations, that part of the creature gets lost. Also, in the book, he's referred to as the creature, I believe. He's never really referred Mm -hmm. to as the monster, which is something, again, they do in the films. They call him the monster. Yeah. And he's never supposed to be a monster. Yeah, and I think, again, that the language and the terminology all comes down to, like, what time period the adaptation is made and what kind of they're trying to portray 
of but the, it happens like... with every adaptation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every single adaptation of Frankenstein now puts forward this narrative of the creature being a monster mm-hmm. and he is the villain of the piece. Mm-hmm. But he's not supposed to be. Yeah. Which is why... The, the villain of the piece is Frankenstein. Yeah. Which is why, and I, this is probably the only time I'm going to mention this version of it on here because anybody that knows me knows very well my feelings on this version. This is why I think Kenneth Branagh's version of Frankenstein is both the best and the worst adaptation of it that's mm. ever been made. Because he tries to do the Coppola thing where he tries to like slavishly like depict everything. He tries to make like the definitive version so he includes a lot of stuff from the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does it in such a way where he's very conflicted about the fact that he's like, I am Kenneth Branagh, I am playing Frankenstein, I am... Like, Kenneth Branagh as a director basically sniffs his own farts. Like, the man thinks he's a fucking genius when he isn't. And he portrays Frankenstein as such. But then also, he tro- he casts fucking Robert De Niro as the creature and tries to give him all of the traits that he has in the book, like the intelligence, the sympathy, like, all of the, like, you know, he learns to read, he learns to talk, like, you know, he's on a vengeance mission to find this father who's abandoned him. But then also he's like, oh shit, I kind of almost have to, I also have to make him a villain as well Mm -hmm. because I'm Kenneth Branagh and no one's fucking upstaging me. Mm -hmm. And there's so much of that film that works because of how much attention to detail he pays from the book. But then there's just so much of it where you're just like, this is fucking bollocks. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. And like, he just just doesn't nail either side of it. Whereas I think the reason why this adaptation works and the reason why it's become so iconic is because it takes the Cliff Notes versions of the book and really dials into, like, the key elements of what the story is about, mm-hmm. um, which is Frankenstein and the creature. Mm-hmm. Like it, and admittedly, for a film that's made in 1931, you would expect like audiences now would expect there to be like a lot more character development, a lot more like, you know. It, a film to be longer, like you would like want more explorations of things. Mm-hmm. But they basically just go, mad scientist, arrogant prick, creature, bad, but not really. And I'm like, that's all you kind of really Thing need is, to do. Is I feel like they don't really address the not really part. They kind of... Immediately after creating him go, oh, he's a monster. Yeah. And you're like, is he? And I also, I also think the one scene that the people find people find the most shocking in this is the scene with the little girl rephrasing in the water. Mm. And like, they don't really treat that scene, or there's no real follow up to that scene that kind of shows the nuance of what that scene is meant to be. Like, he doesn't understand the difference between the flower and the girl, so he throws the girl in the water, thinking she'll float like the flowers, because that's what they've been doing. But it kind of shows that, like. He's met someone who isn't afraid of him and is like willing to show him some sort of compassion. And in that moment, he's happy, but he lacks understanding of what he's doing. And they just go, oh, no, he's a fucking murderer. Because they've already put it in your brain in the beginning of the film that he has a murderer's brain. Like the brain that was stolen to be put in him is a murderer's brain. Uh But at no point throughout the film has the creature shown any sort of murderous characteristics at that point well, it's only towards has. the end when he like well no he has because he kills not eagle yeah but that's in self-defense more than like a cold-blooded I'm oh, gonna yeah, fucking yeah, murder yeah, yeah. but it's still cause... murder yeah 
And it's the same as with, like, the end when he's fighting Frankenstein in the windmill. Like, he's trying to attack Frankenstein, but that's more out of, like, anger and abandonment rather than, I need to kill this man. Because... I think my issue with this film, really, in all honesty, we can dig into all of this stuff as much as you want, but this film is not long enough to explore the nuance of the character of the creature. Yeah. I don't think it helps that they rename the creature the monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Personally. I also don't really understand... Like, I think the other side of the coin as well is, like, I don't really understand what Victor uh, Henry Frankenstein's motivations are. Like, obviously in the book, the reason why he becomes so good at what he's doing and the reason why he becomes, like, a chemist in the first place is because his mother dies and he, he, he cannot live with the grief of living a life without his mother. So he thinks, if I can create new life i can live live with the people that i love mm-hmm. forever mm-hmm. and they they put that like sympathetic spin on him but then mm-hmm. obviously he becomes consumed by his own arrogance etc mm-hmm. and in here you never really get an understanding like like we said last week with the invisible man like i love the fact that it goes straight into like his story and they don't really explain why he's invisible because you get that throughout the film mm-hmm. whereas in this they never give you anything about henry frankenstein that like he his dad's a fucking baron. He's gonna ma- marry Elizabeth. Like everyone thinks he's a fucking top guy, and then like they're like, oh, but they're also worried he's a little bit mad. But he never shows outside of the initial creation sequence. He never shows any signs of like mania or no. narcissism or like anything. He's just for the most part a regular guy who's like, yeah, I'm gonna marry this woman and I'm gonna live a charmed life and. I did this thing, but then we killed him, or like we're gonna kill him, and it's gonna be okay. And it's like I don't really understand the person that he is in this film. Mm-hmm. Like as much as we don't understand the creature or the monster or the the creation in this film, I don't really think you're supposed to outside of the surface level because no, that's no, no. not the story the film is trying to tell. Yeah. However, you would think that they would have spent a little bit more time giving you some kind of, like, idea of who Frankenstein is, what led him to this point, why is he such a good scientist, like, why has he become consumed by this I- idea of yeah. bringing people to life? What What is what's caused all of this? Because it's kind of just a, well, I can, so I will, which, yeah, sure, but, like... There's no rhyme or reason for it. And even like I even after the creature escapes, he's he doesn't seem that fucking bothered about it. No. He's like he's like, oh wow, it got out. He's basically like, oh wow, he got out, it'll die eventually. Yeah. And I'm like much. you know, you you don't know what he's capable of. You don't know like what this creature is gonna do. Like No, he's like, oh no, sad times. Yeah. It's like it's like Frankenstein for me is the ultimate Fafo movie. Like, in the sense that he, like, does a lot of, like, you shouldn't have done this, and now you're going to pay the consequences. But at the same time, like, he doesn't seem that bothered about living with consequences. No. And nobody seems to be that bothered about giving him any consequences. No. Like, and that, to me, especially for a film like this, strikes me as being really weird. And I don't know if it's because we've just come off... And, like, especially if you come off of the back of, like, The Creature from the Black Lagoon and The Invisible Man, which are two movies that we've just watched, one which is about a man who's dealing with fucking science that he shouldn't be dealing with, and one is about a creature in its natural habitat that they don't know anything about. So you're like, 
you guys had no qualms about killing this fucking creature who's just hanging out in this l- lagoon. And, like, you had no qualms about arresting this fucking invisible dude because you were like, oh, yeah, man, he's going to, like, absolutely just murk people because he's fucking invisible. Uh-huh. Yet in this movie, they're like, nah, Frankenstein's, like, he's, like, the son of a baron. Like, it's fine. Like He's, like, doing baron stuff. Yeah, he's like, you know, we don't really seem that bothered about what he's doing. We just want him to come home and just, like, stop fucking about with this corpse but there's like no there's and that to me is kind of like the thing that really falls like that's to me the only thing that really falls apart in this adaptation is there's no sense of him wanting to know where the creature went there's no sense of him being like well i shouldn't have done this i'm remorseful like and there's no sense of the creature ever wanting to get back to him wanting to until I mean, the, until the end, but then he's chased by a mob, so he's cornered. Like I mean, I feel like there is because to be fair, I think Frankenstein thinks that the creature has been dealt with. Yeah. So he's back at home, like all oh, the other doctors dealing with it. Like I don't need to worry anymore, whatever. Because I'm just gonna marry this. I'm just gonna woman. marry Elizabeth, and then the creature does kind of hunt him down because he literally comes to Frankenstein's house. Yeah, he does, but I think that's more just by like he's just returned home because that's the only place he knows. Yeah, rather I, d- than... I think uh, I honestly do think this is a really poorly put together film. Sorry, <laughs> but they just nothing gets explained at all. Yeah, nothing. They're like, oh, there's a creature. The creature killed killed a man, and then uh, killed a child. I think maybe we were planning on killing the creature. It's a little bit unclear. Frankenstein's home. Frankenstein, the monster escapes. Creature escapes. Kid dies. Mm. Creature runs away. Shows up at Frankenstein's house. Frankenstein's all like, he's here. Frankenstein, I thought you thought he was dying. but I thought you thought he was going to get killed. Like, like, what's going on? Yeah. And Elizabeth's all like, oh my god, I got scared. And she goes into a faint. Which is my favourite thing with women in this era is she goes into a faint and she's completely ruined as a human because she witnessed something scary because that's what happens to women if we get scared. Mm. Completely (coughs) put out for a day. And then the monster runs away and then the townsfolk somehow have never never actually seen the monster figure out that the monster killed the little girl. Yeah. And then hunt him down and then he takes him to a windmill. I don't know why they're at a windmill but there's a windmill. And him and Frankenstein fight. He kills Frankenstein. And they, well, he doesn't even kill Frankenstein. Frankenstein somehow survives getting thrown off a windmill and into the fucking baying mob below. Well, he hits the fucking yeah. He hits the blade. Arm, he hits the blade. Yeah. Gets crushed into that and he gets thrown onto the floor. I'm like, yeah. how the fuck are you living through that, bitch? And then they decide to burn the the creature alive. Like, there is so many holes in this entire plot that just. It makes no fucking sense. And then the creature rocks up like two years later and he's like, hey man, make me a bride. Yeah. Because obviously we obviously get the bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, the son of Frankenstein as well. Yeah. But like, I think like anybody that's listened to this podcast knows my feelings on Mary Shelley. Like Frankenstein, the book is like my favourite book of all time next to American Psycho. It's interchangeable depending on what day you ask me on. Um, And I think the story that she crafted at that stage in her life and everything that followed in the wake of it in her life is incredibly interesting, but also incredibly sad. And, you know, when we went to the House of Frankenstein, you know, seeing like the big 
Frank animatronic monster mm-hmm. and seeing like some of the original work that she put into it and stuff. You know, for them to wait a hundred years to kind of do this adaptation of it, and then you kind of look at it and you go, "I I kind of understand what you tried to do, but you know, you you put a lot, you turned it into like a run of the mill horror movie." Well, interesting enough, though, it wasn't a horror movie. It's not billed as such. Well, but no, like... because the idea of horror movies didn't exist for three more years. How mad is that? Yes, yeah, so there was no genre. Horror was not a genre. That's so weird. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. No, horror was not a film genre. Um, so technically, guys, we are lying to you. This is not a <laughs> horror movie. Um, let's talk about some of the, the, the possibly more positive things. What do you think of Boris Karloff as Frankenstein? I, Joe R, it was the one upside of this film, is Boris Karloff is fucking delightful. Mm. But I think he's the only thing I like. <laughs> I like his physicality as I love creature. his physicality. I think his movements are really interesting. You can tell why this became the base plate for what Frankenstein's monster mm. would be going forward. Like, why... Why um, Herman Monster looks like that? Like why? This is the image. This is the image. When anyone says Frankenstein, you think of like the flat topped head, the bolts in the neck. There's like greenish tone to his skin. You can see why that's the image that's like built up in your head, like the arms out Mm. and like the groaning and kind of the like off shoulder walk. Yeah, and the big boots, like the oversized suit. You can see why this became the image that's completely. Take because this is not what the creature looks like. The creature no. looks nothing like this in the book. Because no. when but you can see <clears throat> why this became the version that got dragged through mm. history. Because I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, I think I have a picture of it. When we went to House of Frankenstein, he was like a bit. He's about eight foot tall. About he's got long hair. Tall. He's got like, like a scraggly, partial hair. A barrel chest. That big, big man, hulking arms, yeah. huge legs. He's. We'll see if we can find the photo. We'll, we'll he looks like it up. he looks he's... like Tom Cruise's Lestat if he was on steroids. <laughs> a little <laughs> kind of. bit, yeah. But he looks kind of like how I imagined. Uh, who is it? I'm thinking like uh, Doctor Hyde. Um, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, Mr. Jekyll. No, Mr. Hyde. Doctor Jekyll. Kind of how I imagined Mr. Hyde looking. Yeah. Um. Like in my head, like that's kind of the image I have of Mr. Hyde, and that's what Frankenstein. Uh, the creature, sorry, actually looks like. So it's weird that somehow the original source material is completely <coughs> irrelevant now to this character. Yeah. Like, it's fascinating to me. Like, I, like, you know, living in the, the generation that we live in now, I think it's very rare that people are, like, because of the way that literature is taught in school nowadays, there's probably like an entire, there's probably like three or four generations of kids that don't even know who Mary Shelley is and probably don't even know that Frankenstein was a book because there's so... Because the character of Frankenstein's monster, much like Dracula, and I say that probably as the two out of the Universal Monsters, got so, like, run into the ground with, like, adaptations and different versions and, like, watered-down things that, like, as you said... If you could take that picture of Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's creature and walk anywhere in the world and somebody automatically would go, oh, that's Frankenstein. Yeah. 
erroneously, this, but they would go it's frozen frame, side. Yeah. But this is the thing, and I do feel like the the view we have of like that now being the creature, and that's what mm. the creature looks like, and that the creature is called Frankenstein, which I find endlessly weird. Uh, like is down to not only Karloff because Karloff does a fantastic job, uh, but Jack P. Pierce, who is the man who created and designed mm. Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, the creature, sorry. I'm going to do it multiple times. Yeah, I will yeah, call yeah, it Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, like, who did that? Because, like, this man created one of the most important horror icons based on one of the most important horror books by completely disregarding everything yeah. that was said by him and creating what he thought something like that would look like, which is insane because he's made up of human body parts. Yeah. There's no reason he would look like that. Yeah. It's batshit crazy. But we've gone with it. I think... And do you know what, though? I say this, like... And I don't... I, I can't speak for the dead, obviously. But I think if they'd made this movie in the time of Mary Shelley when she was around, I think she would be like... Sure. Sure. I think she would be incredibly supportive of somebody else's vision because... She, as an artist herself, was incredibly supportive of her peer group. She was incredibly supportive of the people around her. And I think, you know, she puts that book into the world. Yeah. But I also think that with a lot, a lot of great art, when you put it out into the world, it no longer belongs to you. No. And I think if she was alive when this film had been made, I think she would probably be quite supportive of it but I, I but that's just from what i know about her as a human being i don't necessarily know if that would be true or no. not but i don't think she would be horrified i don't think she would think it was an abomination um but i, I just find it weird more so than anything else of like that this has become the the resounding yeah. image of frankenstein are but... there any versions of the story that you actually do like any adaptations and I mean, I don't necessarily think it has to be like a straight adaptation because like Frank and Weenie is a fucking adaptation of this. I've not seen the full length film. Have you not? No. It's pretty good. I've seen the original short. I've not hmm. seen the full length film. I'm not a fast on the full length short, to be honest. Uh, I don't like the Branner version. Uh, I saw that fucking horrendous Victor Frankenstein film with Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, the James McAvoy, Daniel Radcliffe one. That was terrible. Where the creature pops up for like 10 minutes at the end and he's fucking CGI. looks like, he looked, you know what he... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what he looks like in that movie? One of the fucking Titans from Attack on Titan. Yeah. <laughs> um, I honestly, yeah, I, I don't think there is. I, I don't necessarily think that outside of this, there are that many good adaptations necessarily of the story. But I do think the creature himself has been used in pop culture quite well. Like, if you look at, like, Monster Squad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I quite like Monster Squad. I quite, Hotel I, Transylvania. Yeah, I quite like um, the monsters, obviously. The monsters, yeah. Um, but no, not I yours, think... Rob Zombie. Yeah, not yours. Uh, I don't think there is a version of the Frankenstein story that I have enjoyed ever. Mm. We should have done Bride, because Bride's fucking great. But how um, we're going to go back to the well because we have to mention it because uh, it's part of what we're talking about this month. How do you feel about them casting Javier Bardem as uh, him in the Dark Universe when the Dark Universe is going to kick off? Uh, in all honesty, I don't think there was really any of the creatures in that that I'm like particularly protective of that I had like an opinion. 
in the inn mm. on like, oh, well, I don't think that's the right actor to play him. I think they could have cast just about anyone and I've gone, yeah, sure. I think the only one that actually did cast right was fucking Sophia Batella as a mummy. I thought she, she is great. great. She is fantastic. Um, and obviously, famous monster fucker himself, the man who did the, for- the forward for the version of Frankenstein that I have, has announced yeah, that he is doing... because that was the point as well. I didn't even like the Benedict Cumberbatch... See, I, I do, but I like the version where he plays Victor and Johnny Lee Miller plays That's the creature. That's just because you can't stand Johnny Lee Miller. You're just like, at least he's grown no. in. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't dislike Johnny <laughs> Lee Miller. Hackers is one of my all-time favourite movies. I just think it's hilarious. Hey, bruv. That I'm an, from London. That an I English am. man who was born in England <laughs> cannot seem to sound English when he makes like watch Dracula two thousand so and he's like, Alright, Gov, that's why you don't fuck with an antiques dealer, bruv. It's like the guy Ritchie direct this fucking shit. <laughs> Mate, how he's not been in a guy Ritchie movie, but, yeah, I don't I, know. I don't even like that. And, and that's got Benedict. I fucking love Bonnie hmm. and I'm quite Wait, a big fan. Danny Boyle directed that shit. I'm quite a big fan of Johnny Miller. Mm. I really like Elementary. And yeah, I didn't even enjoy that. I think I turned it off about 30 minutes in. Because mm. they. It was fucking bored. It was one of the things that they put up for free on Amazon or YouTube when, when we were in lockdown. Was on, yeah. They started putting like loads of plays on. It was a theatre. Went to up, watch. which was quite nice um, um, but yeah I didn't even enjoy that which is <clears throat> surprising but back to my original point sorry GDT famous monster fucker himself is making a version of this for Netflix yes and he has cast Christoph Waltz I don't care uh, Mia Goth I, I assume who's going to play Elizabeth and then Oscar Isaac and Andrew sexy Garfield. Sexy man and sexy man. So which... But he hasn't said which way round it's going to be. We assume Oscar Isaac's playing Victor and Andrew Garfield is playing the creature, right? I mean, I assumed the other way around. I assumed Andrew would be playing Victor and Oscar Isaac. I'm pretty sure the, the news story I read was Oscar creator, Andrew creature. Oh, see, so yeah, no, I'd imagine it's again, the other way around. Yeah, but the thing head. is... Del Toro's a monster fucker, and out of those two, like you're gonna want a fuck, you're gonna want a more fuckable creature, which would be Andrew Garfield. Uh, not, not, that, not, not that, not, not that I think the Eva man is particularly attractive. Um, I'm sorry, Mister eats his fucking Cheetos with hot with chopsticks. It's not sexy. Mate, is that what you're telling me? I actually chopstick daddy is sexy as fuck. Okay? Mate, I actually did that the other day. I know you it's, did. You sent me a picture it, of me doing it. You were like Oscar would be so proud of it's me. It's so helpful. It's so helpful. It I've done it a few times with different Chris. Um, I don't want to get my hands messy. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, to be fair, I, you can say it all you want, but I adore both Oscar Isaac and Andrew Garfield. I so. also, I also think if anybody understands the assignment, it's like Del Toro. Because even though I haven't seen all of Shape of Water, I'm like, yeah, you could tell this was like a failed creature from the Black Lagoon movie. Mm. And I love that quote from John Carpenter, where John Carpenter's like, yeah. He made the movie about fucking a fish. That's how you get the Oscar because you have to fuck a fish. Yeah. No, honestly, like, I, I'm kind of excited about that because it's got two actors that I absolutely adore mm. in it and it's by Guillermo del Toro, who I love, so... Bro, do you remember that fucking thing that Netflix did with David Harbour where it was, like, the fake footage of, like, the guy who starred in the original play of Frankenstein? I think And we so, tried yeah. to watch that and it was fucking bollocks. Yeah, I think so. I vaguely have yeah. recollections of this. But yeah, I'm kind of into it. Plus, I'm really intrigued as to A, what a film directed by Guillermo del Toro, who's renowned for being a monster fucker, with Andrew Garfield and Oscar Isaac, who have never met another man in their life they don't want to flirt with, mm. is going to 
look like, in all honesty, because <laughs> I feel like it's going to turn into some weird, you're going to have fucking the creature flirting with Frankenstein. Mm. And I'm like, do you know what, Guillermo? <laughs> I'm here for it. You absolute psychopath. Plus, that press tour is going to be fucking hilarious. And when you add in, like, haunted, the haunted doll herself. <laughs> Hi, guys, I'm Mia Goth. I'm just here to be a, be a Mia Goth. Sorry, yeah. that's my really bad impression. It's a really of bad impression of me, Goth. But yeah, um, the haunted dolls all herself and Christopher Waltz. Well, they've done it. They just there's a version of it that's coming out the end of this year by Panos. Somebody I can't remember. It's, apologies, I can't remember his surname. But there's a version of it that's coming out called Poor Things, which has got Willem Dafoe in it mm. as the creature, Mark Ruffalo and Emma Stone. Mm. And that's kind of like a there weird, sexy version of Frankenstein. Also, a book released <coughs> this year on a side note called um, Our Hideous Progeny, which is uh, Frankenstein. It's like the great, great, great granddaughter of Victor Frankenstein who finds out about her great, many great times great grandfather's creature mm-hmm. uh, and like the history of the family and goes hunting for the creature herself. We also I haven't read it, but I've heard quite good things about it. We also had the Shudder original this year, the angry black girl and her monster. Which I, I is do want to conte- see that, another actually. contemporary take on it. I do want to see that actually. So and, we might find a Frankenstein mm. film I like at some point. And Zelda Williams, Robin's daughter, mm-hmm. has got her directorial debut coming out in February called Lisa Frankenstein, which is a female spin on the story as well. So yeah, I think I think it's one of those things like it's See, I'm waiting for the day uh, Lauren Stephen does a adaptation of Frankenstein because she's already done Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde with uh, the School for Soulless uh, Society of Soulless Girls, mm. and then she's just released one called uh, Every Exquisite Thing, which is a retelling of the Portrait of Dorian Gray. So I'm looking forward to the day that she comes out with a Frankenstein adaptation with an angry feminist twist. I do find it mad though that like you can go into fucking toy shops because i have a lego frank like creature figure you do downstairs have a lego, Frankie. um and i find it mad that we went into asda today to buy some shopping and they had like little cartoon versions of him and i do find it weird how like these iconic monsters that were born from like these iconic works of literature are now like basically a fucking emoji like i find that shit so fascinating like how one generation's like great piece of art is like now some fucking generations like Oh, it's in a moat. I'm waiting for them to turn up in Fortnite, see fucking Frankenstein's a monster flossing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of like, it's a short film, so there wasn't really a lot for us to talk about this week, which is kind of why we were like, wow, let's just fold in the House of Usher stuff as well. Yeah. Um, but what were, what are your final thoughts on James Wells' version of Frankenstein and what score would you give it? Honestly, I, I think this is a really bad film. I really just think it's not well thought out. It's not well plotted. Uh, there's so many plot holes you could drive a fucking semi through it. Um, the only saving grace of this film is Boris Karloff, who is delightful. Uh, ratings. I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a one and a half, and I'm literally giving it that one and a half for Boris Karloff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I disagree. I think, as my wife will tell anyone in the local facility, me and Mary Shelley are involved. And I absolutely adore that woman and her work. And Frankenstein is one of my favourite stories of all time. And I think being the kind of person that I am, like I I found 
an affinity with the creature. And I think the way that the creature is portrayed in this film is very interesting. I agree with you to a degree. I think the film does have a lot of plot holes and I do think that not everything works. And I think it is just like a base version of the story. But I do think that there is a reason why this film is iconic. And I do think that there is a reason why this version of the creature has become iconic. Um, I'm going to give it a three and a half because I do think that, you know, there is some iconic stuff like the It's Alive sequence, you know, the scene it's with alive. the girl, the scene at the end. There is some really like striking stuff in this film. I don't think it's as strong as The Invisible Man in terms of works by James Whale. However, I do think that it's a it's a very interesting film. I would highly recommend on another note, there is a film by Bill Condon called um, Gods and Monsters which is about the last years of James Wells' life, and he's played by Ian McKellen, and it's a really beautiful film, and yes, I would McKellen. highly recommend watching that. But yeah, I would give it a three out of five. Um, so yeah, that's our thoughts on James Wells' 1931 Frankenstein. Um, for those of you that have seen the film, how would you rank it amongst the Universal Monsters? Do you think it's a good adaptation? Do you think it's a good film? Are there other adaptations that you prefer? Um, let us know, as always. Find us on social media, S-I-M-A-H-F-Pod on Twitter. So I'm a horror fan, all lowercase, all one word, on Tumblr and Instagram. Um, and if that is the end of the episode for you, then we will bid you farewell. If not, if you stick around, from this point forward, we will be giving our thoughts on The Fall of the House of Usher, the new Netflix series by Mike Flanagan. Mm -hmm. So... If you haven't seen it, we will try not to go into full spoilers too much, but there may be spoilers I'm ahead. I'm making absolutely zero <laughs> guarantees. But... This is going to be a spoiler review. <laughs> Just accept it. <laughs> so yeah, if you are listening to this last part of the episode, it's because you have seen it or you don't care about spoilers, so you have been warned, um, and we will be bringing you that now. So, for those of you that are still with us, hello. hello. It's uh, time... For the fall of the house of Usher, yes. a.k.a. You okay, Mike? You alright, Mikey Babes? You okay, hon? Fucking hell. Right, so, we have on this, uh, created by Mike Flanagan, or Flanagan for Flanagan. Uh, give me a minute because I do realise I want to be very clear on all of this. So we have... Do you know we didn't talk about your Frankenstein nails in the first part of the episode? We didn't. I do have Frankenstein nails at the moment. Cute. So we have on here, series created by Mike Flanagan, teleplay also done by Mike Flanagan. We have staff writers who are Justina Ireland and Keel, I'm sure that's how you pronounce her name, Sanchez. Uh, based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe, and the story editor for the show is Danny Parker. And then we also have executive story editor of Rebecca Klingle. Again, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce her name. Mm -hmm. Jamie if, Flanagan is involved somehow. Uh, well, he, teleplay, he did the teleplay for one episode. Yeah. Uh, Casting-wise for the show, we have right. Carla Gugino as Verna. Bruce Greenwood as Roderick Usher, Mary McDonnell as Madeline Usher, Henry Thomas as Frederick Usher, Raul Coley, Coley? Raul Coley. Coley, thank you, as Leo Usher. Napoleon Usher. Uh, he's credited as Leo, but yeah, yeah. Napoleon. Uh, Samantha Sloyan, yeah, as Tamerlane Usher, or just Tammy, I think she gets called quite a lot. Uh, Tania Miller as Victorine Le... Oh my God. La Focard. 
Yeah. Uh, Zach Guilford as young Roderick. Wilma Fitzgerald as young Madeline. Michael, I'm sorry, Willa. Uh, Michael Truco as Rufus Griswold. Katie Parker as Annabelle Lee. Matt Bedell as William Bill T. Wilson. Crystal Balin as Morella Morel Usher. Uh, Ruth Codd as Juno Usher. Kaylee Curran as Lenore. Carl Lumbee as Augustine de Pin. Mark Hamill as Arthur Pin. Arthur Pym, Jesus. Jesus, yeah. Kate Segal as Camille Lesbanier. Jesus Christ. Uh, Sarian Sakota as Perry Usher. Paolo Nunez, I can pronounce that surname, as Alexandra Ruiz. Perry is Prospero, isn't it? Yeah, Perry is Prospero. Uh, Malcolm Goodwin as Young Dupin. Daniel Chajon as Julius. And then I think aside from that, oh, we've got Igby, R- Igby Reneg, Rene, Rigne? Yeah, as Toby and Anya uh, Furukawa as Tina. So who was who was um, Victorine's girlfriend or wife? Uh, Victorine's wife, uh, yeah, wife, is Doctor Alexandra Ruiz. Yeah, who is she played by? Paolo Nunez. Cool. I couldn't. I can't remember you saying that. Oh, that's a big cast. All people from the Flanniverse. Yeah, all people who have previously worked with and will continue to work with Flanagan until the end of time. Yeah. Uh, Plotline wise, uh, to, to secure their fortune and future, two ruthless siblings build a family dynasty that begins to crumble when their heirs mysteriously die one by one. Hmm. From this point forward, uh, I guess spoilers. If you haven't seen the House of Usher, fall, the, ha- the fall of the House of Usher, get the fuck out of this episode immediately. Uh, go watch it. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's the last thing that Mike Flanagan's done on his Netflix contract. Before he's gone to the greener pastures of Amazon Prime. Prime. Um, so, yeah, you have been warned. That's the, that's the spoiler raven rapping on your chamber doors to tell you to fuck off. The spoilers. <laughs> and you will complain never more if you get this ruined for you. <laughs> um, so, uh, I'll start with you again. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, uh, so... Calmly. Much like you and Mary Shelley mm-hmm. were involved. Okay. So I... I don't know if irresponsibly is a good word for this. was introduced to Edgar Allan Poe by my year five teacher. So I would have been nine bro i found out today that one of our friends let her six-year-old watch lost boys for the first time today so i love that for let's her. not talk about her response um but like so i'd been maybe nine and i was a really avid reader from a quite young age and my uh my fifth my year five teacher uh mr henry uh gave me a copy an illustrated edition of tales of mystery and the imagination and i'd read i basically I'd read through our library in the classroom and he had a really nice illustrated edition of Tales of Mystery and Imagination at home, and he brought it into the school and let me borrow it. Man's not in the union anymore <laughs> because of shit like this. Uh, he was possibly one of the greatest teachers I ever had and kind of really did spark my love for Edgar Allan Poe. Um, he, he's one of the... Do you know I do that quite a lot, where mm. I tap my nose and point at someone? That comes from Mr Henry. Mm. 
Um, so I've, I fell in love with Edgar Allan Poe at quite a young age. I think maybe it's part of the reason I'm so weird as an adult. Maybe. <laughs> God damn you. Um, but yeah, so I fell in love with him really young. And I've kind of obsessively read his work numerous times. I have worked my way through numerous editions of his work. I've destroyed more copies of Tales of Mystery and the Imagination than I think is completely sensible. They get torn, ripped. I've had co- I've had pages completely fall out of them. I have a, currently have a really good, cool, lovely edition from 1909, we, we realised yesterday. Uh, in hardback, it has a lovely old book smell, which is like one of my pride and joys of my book collection. And I don't know, I think it's just one of those, I've always really loved him. And like, there's not really any specific reason other than I think maybe I was just introduced to him so young that he, he really made a mark on on me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so... Apparently, apparently people seem obsessed with the idea of him solving crimes. Yeah. Which is mad. Like, people like repaint him in fiction as like a fucking detective, which yeah, I think so, is really that- funny. Pale Blue Eye. Yeah, and The Raven as well. And The Raven. The one with John... Because I think John, uh, the thing is, John I, Cusack plays yeah. him in that. I don't know a huge amount about his personal life. I don't know a lot about him outside of his works. Uh, unlike you with Mary Shelley, I'm not... I don't know a lot about him personally. Mm. Uh, but as far as I am aware, he was not a detective. Yeah. Uh, but maybe... I, he had he had some some interesting cohorts, we'll put it that way. Yeah, and he had an arch nemesis who wrote a really scathing obituary when he died. I think that's so funny, which is hilarious. One of the characters in this is named after him, and I can't remember who it is. I just think that's really funny. Like you know, like in The Simpsons, how Maggie has the unibrow baby, and they just like point at each other yeah, and yeah, they yeah. each other. That's kind of how I imagine it in my head. It's just him and some dude walking down the street, and. Edgar Allan Poe's like, you best stay on your side of the street, motherfucker, or I'm going to knock you out. Like, I just think oh, that's it's so Griswold. Funny. Yeah, that makes a fucking ton of sense. Uh, so, yeah, the character of Griswold, who is kind of one of the villains in this, um, and he wrote a death announcement for Edgar Allan Poe, which was quite scathing, which I really want to... Edgar Allan Poe is dead. He died in Baltimore the day before yesterday. This announcement will startle many, but a few will be grieved by it. <laughs> That's the opening line of the obituary he wrote. It's like, it's a scathing obituary and it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, so I don't really know, like, where this fascination with him, like... Because in The Raven, it's kind of like a Jack the Ripper type film, isn't it? Where, like, John Cusack plays him and there's, like, a fucking serial killer or some shit. Yeah. And they have to, like stop the serial killer and apparently it was what inspired one of his works and apparently the pale blue eye with christian bale and i don't know fucking dick geezer from harry potter who plays him i can't remember the kid's name the guy who plays him uh is the guy who who is harry's cousin in harry potter i can't remember dudley dudley yeah i can't remember the fucking character i can't remember like apparently that inspired one of his works as well yeah. Um, and the pale blue eye is a line from the Tales of Heart because it mentions yeah, the, pale, the yeah. raven having a pale blue it's eye. It's not a raven, but yeah. Yeah, it is. No, it's not. I, think I was literally reading that book last night. The raven is not in the Tales of Heart, babe. He mentions a raven with a pale blue eye looking upon him. No, he doesn't. Yeah, I literally read that. It's literally on the first page of the Tales of Heart. He mentions there being a raven 
who has a pale blue eye is cast upon him. Because I was reading it last night while we while we were having a break between episodes. This is the bit where you find it now and you fucking prove me wrong, but I'm almost 100% positive it's a raven with a pale blue eye. Because I remember the words pale blue eye sticking out and being like, oh fuck, that's what the, the book is, uh, the film is named after. But as far as I know... No, it's the... So it's his neighbour has one normal eye and one eye that's clouded in a pale blue. Oh. And it's his neighbour's eye he sees through the crack in the door because that's who he kills and takes the heart from. I knew she was going to fucking I've do not this. even read to the story, but I was like, I know exactly what you're referencing. I knew, it's not she, a I knew she was going to fucking do this. <laughs> um, anyway, because the pale blue eye, the film's not based on the story, is it? Apparently it's based hey. on him writing the story of, of the like, Tao Tao Heart, the fucking murder is. Because it's the fucking, yeah. Yeah, I don't was, know. But it is weird. weird. But this it's is weird. completely off kilter of what we're talking about. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but no, so this show is based off of... I think basically every story from Tales of Mystery and Imagination. Yeah. Bar the Raven, which does not appear in some edition, in more modern editions it does, in older editions it doesn't. Yeah, it's kind of tacked on, isn't it? Yeah. It's like an um, extra incentive for people to buy the book. But yeah, so it covers like Murders in the Room Morgue, Pet and Pendulum, The Gold Bug, uh, The Mask of the Red Death. Mask of the Red Death. <laughs> <coughs> the Black Cat. The Black Cat, the Raven, and... It's basically what all the episodes are named after. I know, I'm trying to think what the other two episodes are. Uh, the Weary, Dreary... High. Oh, on a, midnight, on a Midnight Dreary, which is the first mm-hmm. episode. And I can't think what the other one is, because it's... Pale Blue Eye... No, not Pale Blue Eye, Jesus Christ. Pit of the... The Pit of the Pendulum, No, the I'm, I'm trying to do it in Mark, order, yeah. so it's... On a Midnight Dreary, and then the it's Mask of the Red, Mask of the Red, Dre- Red Dreath. Red Death. Yeah. I'm trying to think what... Oh, Murders in the Room Org. Mm. Black Cat. Mm-hmm. Telltale Heart. Yeah. The Gold Bug. Mm-hmm. Pit and Pendulum. Pit and Pendulum. Two, three, four, five, six. Oh, yeah, six, seven, eight. Yeah. Raven and On a Midnight Dreary. Yeah. Yeah, and then but in there they also cover stuff like uh, the premature burial is referenced. Um, Annabelle Lee's referenced. Annabelle Lee gets Lenore's referenced. referenced. Lenore, uh, Lenore's a character from the Raven. Mm. Um, she's, it's also a poem. Lenore's a poem. Yeah, but she's referenced mm. because of her being a character yeah, yeah, yeah. in the Raven in this. Um, they reference they reference so many of his works. Um, uh, William Wilson, which obviously is a character name, is also a story. Uh, I can't. The detective specifically comes from one of the stories. I can't remember uh, the cask of um, Amadillo. There's so many Poe references, even though each story kind of is ba- each episode is based on a specific story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many other references. So, like the mother's death is a reference to premature burial. Um, the sister's death is based on. Oh my god! What's the the mummy story he wrote? I can't remember what the story is called. But there are so many references snuck in there to other works. Character names pulled from other works. Uh, actual direct dialogue used in there comes from Poe's work, like, straight up. Uh, there's actually a line. It's the voiceover towards the end when Dopin is stood outside okay. the house. Uh, the actual monologue he gives is, or the little, like, talky bit, is the actual end of the fall of the house of Russia. I think one of the 
talks the priest gives at one of the funerals is again directly pulled from Poe's work. Um, so there's so much like snuck in there, like it's insane. Mm. And I had so much fun trying to catch all of the little nods and references to each of Poe's works. The thing is, I don't know what Netflix did. Uh, whether Netflix... See, I don't know... Because I don't know about too much about how it came about. I don't know if Netflix went, right, we bought the rights to Poe's work and we could just do it this way. Or if Mike Flanagan went, I have an idea, let's do it this way. And then they can get like a whole series and just cram everything into one series. Because basically this is a mixtape. This is essentially how this acts. It's like a a mixtape of like Edgar Allan Poe's work. It's not a linear thing like his Jackson work. Uh, so they wouldn't have had to get the rights because Edgar Allan Poe's work is public domain. Okay. So it probably more was... Uh, Flanagan went, I have Flanagan an idea. Flanagan went up to them and went, I have an idea. And they went... Is it gonna be good? And he went, "I'm fucking Flanagan." And they went, "Good point. Do what you please." Because because this is so all of his work for Netflix has been an adaptation of somebody else's work. Mm-hmm. So he did the Haunting of Hill House, which is based on Shirley Jackson's work. Mm-hmm. The Turning of the Screw is the second one he did, wasn't it? Because it was the Haunting of Hill House, and then I can't remember what the second, the Haunting of Blind Manor, Manor, which is based on Turning of the, the Screw. screw. And then he did Gerald's Game, which is a film adaptation of Stephen King's work. Then he did The Midnight Club, which is uh, an adaptation of a book by someone else. No, it's Mike somebody. For some reason, I thought Midnight Club was... The only thing that he's directed for Netflix that was an original work is Midnight Mass, Mm. which is obviously based on an idea that he had. But then obviously he's done this, which is based on Poe's work. So four out of the five things... That he's directed have been adaptations. And then obviously his other most famous work is his adaptation of Doctor Sleep, which mm-hmm. is one of the greatest film like horror films of the last five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it came in twenty nineteen, five years. I had to think about mental maps then. Um so it is fascinating that they locked Flanagan in uh, like they locked him into a contract for so many things and then all of them turned out to be like basically adaptations. Um I still to this day have not seen The Haunting of Hill House or no. The Haunting of Bly Manor. I am at some point going to go back and rewatch them. We tried to watch Midnight Club and we, I think we only got about two episodes into it and then just went, fuck this and peaced out. Yeah. Again, it's something I want to go back to. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved Midnight Mass. Mm-hmm. So I will freely admit that I'm an Edgar Allan Poser. Um his, his work is something that I quote quite regularly, but I know very little about the man or his work himself. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of Telltale Heart, which I have read and I think is an amazing fucking story. And I think when we covered The Mask of the Red Death like two years ago, going on nearly three years ago now, um, I actually then turned around and said, somebody should fucking make that story. And I think... I would have to go back and listen to the episode, but I think I actually said Mike Flanagan should be the person to fucking do it. Because I th- I think then, even then, I was talking about how fucking great he is. Yeah. Um, And I kind of went into this being like, I wasn't really sure what this was going to be. Mm-hmm. And even watching the trailer before we sat down to watch it, I wasn't really sure what exactly it was going to be. Because they were like, it's a story but it references his works. And I was like, okay, so is it going to be like 
a story and then they're just going to make like cheeky nods to his like work or cheeky references or mm-hmm. stuff. I didn't realize that they were going to use the works as framing devices to kill off the individual characters in the story, which I think quite frankly is fucking brilliant. I do have to say, I think my favorite thing about this whole thing is the way they took books that were written, stories that were written over a hundred years ago and modernized them without losing the core of what they are. I think you come into it, you see Once Upon a Midnight Jury, which is kind of the opener, sets everything up. You find out kind of about the court case and like the kids dying and everything like that and what's going on. And then obviously you go into The Mask of Red Death, which is like the first real real story you get. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that was the moment I was like, oh shit, they've done this so well. The modernisation of The Mask of Red Death for Prospero is so fucking great. <laughs> because obviously it's based around a man, very rich king, who locks all of the peasants out and throws these wild parties while everyone else is dying. Uh, which they do by making him a rich kid who wants to throw these exclusive parties for the uber rich that costs like 5k to get in it's like 100k to be a member 5k to get into the party and then he's planning on blackmailing them with the videos of what happens at these parties also i'm right in saying that there's a woman in the mask of the red death that vincent price is obsessed with like who spurns his advances i believe so and they yeah. feed they feed that into it being his like fucking sister-in-law, sister-in-law in this, which yeah. is so funny and obviously um verna verna yeah um is death in this case she comes in with the red cape oh, so and the death mask which is fucking delightful and they really play the story through so well and instead of getting them all getting the plague at the end which is how the mask of red death does it they managed to recreate kind of plague-like wounds by burning them all to death with acid. Yeah, the uh, end sequence of this, especially when uh, Mark Hamill's character goes to investigate the aftermath, just looks like the party scene from Society. It really fucking is really fucking gross. <laughs> but like, so that like, that's probably the moment that I was like, okay, okay, we've got something here. This is fucking grateful grateful this is fucking great and then they do it with every other episode consequently as well look i have my favorites personally Mm. there are certain episodes that i was like this is fucking great uh surprisingly because it is one of my my favorite stories telltale heart didn't crack my like top episodes i don't think the adaptation of it in this is as good as my favorite version of it which is the simpsons treehouse of horror version which i think is still probably my favourite adaptation of it. I think there's I st- not many of them, but that's top yeah. tier for I me. still think it's really well thought out, played out, and the way they do it is amazing. But it did, didn't crack my top... My my top... What my top three, should we call it? Because hmm. I think my favourites would, without a doubt, be uh, the, mur- um, the Murders at the Room Morgue. No, um, Mask of Red Death, I think, is great. Um, maybe Murders at the Room Morgue. Love the Pit and the Pendulum episode. Uh, and then the Raven for me. Mm. The final episode. I think the final episode is so good. And the way they feed the Raven into the story, and they actually do the poem as well, I thought was fucking fantastic. Yeah, they take the iconic line out of the the poem, the one that's quoted in The Crow, the 
as I as I sat in my chambers, I heard a rapping on my chambers door, as if by someone. Whatever, like I can't quote it verbatim, but whatever that line is, is not in the poem, which is not featured in the episode. The thing that I love about this show, and it's why it works so well, is that it manages to tell a linear story. So it it functions as an actual TV series with an ongoing plot from point A to point B that is prevalent throughout every single episode while also managing to make every episode an anthology-like bottle episode Mm -hmm. based on the specific character that is the target of that episode. But it never stops... It never stops being one thing in service of the other. Both things manage to act together yeah, to service the story. This is the great thing, I think, because we do... All of the stories are told in kind of what would be... It's told in a linear perspective while also being non-linear and all of the actual stories of the deaths are actually flashbacks. They're all taking place in the past. Yeah, yeah. but you don't really notice that <clears> or think about it too much because it works so well. But they have the through arc of um, Roderick telling depend the fucking stories of what's happening and where it all started and what what went on and then you have the flashbacks throughout as well to him and i can't what his sister is called margaret no madeline madeline when they were younger and kind of so you have this through line of him telling like now telling the story of what happened to each of the children while also him telling him the story of him and madeline and how this all came about and how they ended up where they were. And there's this ongoing mystery plot throughout all of what it was that him and Madeline did that led to what is happening now. So it's like mm-hmm. this like New Year's Eve 1979. And it all really takes place around that time period. And kind of you find out how him and Depin met years ago. Back when he was like what it is like 20s. Yeah. Mid 20s somewhere. Be. Well, he was born in 1950, according to his gravestone. So in 1979, he would have been 29. Yeah. Him and Madeline would have been 29. So it kind of takes place in the year of, like, 79. You find out how they met um, and everything like that. And then, well, also finding out what happened to each of the children. And then also seeing what is happening presently with him seeing each of the dead children as ghosts. Yeah. And his decline into it has madness. A, it has a very uh, Scrooge in a Christmas Carol uh, element to the framing thing of like, yeah. you are a fucking shite hawk. Yeah. And you've been visited by these ghosts and it's like, you know, it's too late for you. You can't like, you can't repent and change your ways. Yeah. But you're also like going to fucking die without anybody around you. And it's it's really interesting. Like The things that I love about, like there are certain things that I love about this show and it's like, it's the things that Mike Flanagan does really, really well, other than keeping everybody on the fucking payroll, um, is like he he his horror is such a very specific brand of horror. And it's kind of he does a similar thing to what Ari Aster does, but he never takes like he seems to take it to a more like realistic place than I guess what Ari Aster does. Like there's still an element of like detachment with Ariaster's work whereas like with Mike Flanagan the way that he deals in his very specific brand of generational trauma is like I feel more relatable than what like um Ariaster does it that's not a slight on him because I, I love him but I think 
the way that he deals with like the generational trauma and like the characters and the use of ghosts in his work Hmm. like both physical and metaphorical are like like it took me a few episodes to realize that the reason why the um everybody else could only see Carla Cugino as a ghost is because they have no idea why she's there like the only people who ever ever really see her as a physical presence are like Madeline, Arthur, and mm. well, fucking... no, because all of the kids interact with her. Yeah, but like when the, when it comes to them actually dying, she's not there. She's never a physical presence mm. in the sense of like she shows yeah, up on the security only footage. Time and stuff. I think she's the only two times she's like actually directly no, three. I know she's directly involved with like five of the deaths, isn't mm. she? Because she's there when Prospero dies. Yeah. Uh, she's there when <coughs> Katie Siegel dies. Mm. I can't remember what her character was called. Uh, Camille. Camille dies. Uh, she's there for Frederick's death. Mm. She's there for Lenore's death, obviously. She's also there when uh, Tammy dies as well. And she's there when Tammy dies. It's just those five? Yeah. Cause... Oh, because she's there when... Um, Napoleon Leon dies Napoleon, as well. Napoleon sees her, but like she's well, she's she's she's, she's, yeah, she's, she's I think she's she's, she's, she's in the wall. She's in the wall. She's in the, the wall. So and she's then, there. She pieces out. So there's only the one. Yeah, but like what I mean is like they don't really see her. Like mm. she's not a real thing. Like they see her in the sense that she's like they're looking at another character and she has taken on their form in a lot of the lot of the things, but then. When it cut, like, the only people that see her in, like, the security footage and stuff are the people that made the deal with her. Like, she's not really a physical entity um, for the most part. Or they play with the idea of her being one, but Pim, not really being you know, one. Because Pim sees her, and Pim hasn't made the deal with her. Yeah, but he must, like, but he's been He's filled. not aware of it either. Because they, literally, there's the scene where him and Madeline are talking about mm. it, and Pim's in the room. And Madeline says, remember what happened on New Year's Eve 79? And he literally looks at her and goes, he's like, oh, Pim needs to leave. And Madeline's like, no, he should hear this. And he's like, nothing happened that night. We promised to never discuss it. So Pim's not aware of the deal. But then when she has the conversation with him in the last episode or the second to last episode, I can't remember which episode it is. The last episode. Yeah. Then she's like a spirit as well. Like, she's not real. But she's always a spirit. She's Mm. always... She is death, mm. or bargaining, or fate. Yeah. It's, it's slightly unclear as to what her job is. I feel like she's just there to fuck with people mm. and see how bad she can make people become. Yeah, it's it's all a bit Faustian, isn't it? Like It does feel very Faustian. And also, I think when she talks to Prospero, she references coming topside, mm. which makes me think she is, in fact, like a demon of some description. <coughs> well, I can't remember which fucking episode it is. But she references the old gods in one of the episodes. Yeah, and when she talks to Pim about making the deal with him, she talks to him about him being on the expedition and she says, I came topside to see it. Mm. So maybe she is a demon. It's kind of left a little bit ambiguous as to what she actually is, which I quite like because it's very unclear Mm. as to who she is. In fact, she's the raven. Yeah. And that's all you really know about her. But also, I do like she gives each of the children the chance to make their deaths easier. Yeah. Because uh, she she gives Prospero the choice at the 
at the party. Uh, obviously, she gives Katie Siegel's character, her name's Camille, mm-hmm. the choice not to go into the lab. Yeah. Um, she gives uh, Vivian... Vivian? Vivian. Victoria. Victorine. Victorine. There we go. Jesus. Me and names are not good. It's bad enough in my real life, let alone when they're fictional. Um, she gives her the choice when she's signing all of the documents to come clean. Um, there's, like, each of them gets given the chance to not negate their deaths because they, they have to die. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a requirement of the deal she makes. But much like we see with Lenore, she has the she has the choice to give them a peaceful death. Mm-hmm. Uh, but them refusing to listen to her or just all around being absolute douchebags leads them going through horrific deaths because Lenore is the only one who gets to go peacefully and I think that's my it's both my favorite and the saddest scene in the show because um Berner is obviously quite distraught to have to kill Lenore because mm-hmm. there's she literally says to her she's like i really love my job but sometimes times like this it really does hurt and she tells her what the future holds what her mum will go on to do when she's gone it's this really weirdly heartfelt yet heartbreaking scene and i think it's maybe weirdly because some, some of the deaths are really fucking cool but i think it might be my favorite death in the show mm. <clears throat> yeah, and like I also kind of wondered as well because like it made me think of like in the last episode, like because she says when she makes a deal with Madeline and Roderick about like <clears throat> Madeline talks about like not wanting to like live in a world where she has to like service men or live in service of men, and she says, "Oh, what about like in service of women?" And like at the beginning, you obviously see Dad Mum come back to life mm-hmm. and strangle Dad Dad, who was the original head, uh, of... head of Fortunata. And then his sister, Madeline, comes back in exactly the same way and kills him. And it did make me wonder, and that would be one of the lingering questions I take away from the show, will be, did that mother make some kind of deal See, with her? I feel like the answer to that question is no. Mm. Purely because she makes deals that give people fame, glory and power, which their mum had none of. Mm. I think the I think it's just an interesting uh, way to open and close the show of having basically the same death occur twice, both done by usher women. Yeah. With powerful men involved, but I don't like I don't think her, their parent their mum made a deal mm. because it just seems a bit unless their dad had made a deal. Yeah. Mm, maybe because he's rich and powerful. He owns Fortunata. Yeah. So potentially, but like we said, spouses don't normally die. But what well, it depends on what you make the deal for, isn't it? Because she t- it's the it's a worldly item that basically is important to you because that's the deal she offers Pim, and Pim says I don't have anything like that, so thank you for the offer, but. It's a no from me. Yeah, he's like, I have nothing to leverage. It's like in 70 years of my life, like no one has ever leveraged anything from me or for me. Yeah. Mark Hamill's 
fucking great in this. Mark Hamill is fantastic in this. It's a really it's... unexpected role for him yeah. as well. I mean, I was going to say it's weird seeing him play a villain, but like obviously he played the Joker, well, voiced the Joker for years. Yeah. But you never really see him on screen play a villain, and it's really fucking fascinating. And it's a really uh, subtle performance as well, given the nature of his character and what he's, he gets constantly asked to do. Yeah, because he's an enforcer. Yeah, it's not a really like flashy or showy performance, but no. he's really fucking good in it he's Um, fantastic in it but like yeah uh, i've seen a lot of people online talk about how they think that this is going to be like mike Mike, like the thing that mike flanagan becomes known for this will be his like masterpiece and i don't i don't ever think the show hits the heights of like what midnight mass did for me personally but i do think that there is a lot to love in this show and, like, it's really interesting seeing, like, the exploration of, like, different relationships in this show and, like, the way that, like, all of the family, like, obviously, like, it's written into the story that all of the kids have different mothers so that they can cast, like, diverse actors. Yeah, but it's Tam, <clears throat> Tamlane and... Frederick, yeah, both Annabelle Lee's children. <clears throat> so basically, Mike Flanagan can go. These are all the actors I want. We'll find a way to make. We'll it find a way to figure sense. it out. Um, but yeah, I think there's something really inherently clever about the 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 story. The things that really bothered me was, and like, I'm really sorry to talk about this because I know it's going to make people uncomfortable. The amount of fucking animal torture and death and yeah. like stuff in this really fucking pissed me off. I mean, I do feel like after the Black Cat episode, which is what, episode four? Episode yeah. three. They tone it down. It st- well, it basically stops yeah. after that. Um, like... There's only really the scenes in episode one, three, and four. Yeah, I could have done without all the fucking scenes of monkeys being experimented on and like all of the dead animals in the fucking Black Cat episode. And the episode that precedes that, where the cat gets fucking stabbed to death, I could have really fucking done with all of, oh, yeah. about all of that. Like. But I do feel like Flanagan does that in most of his work. There's always some kind of dead animal. <laughs> yeah, and I don't, I don't like it. Like, see, I think it's quite interesting. Uh, not so much with the black cat because I feel like that was purely done to go into the black mm. cat because you needed that. You needed something to spark yeah. it. Uh, but I do feel a little bit like the animal testing that we see kind of within the first few episodes is kind of uh, you don't see this side of what happens mm. when you agree to wear makeup that's tested on animals, yeah. take take these pills but, that have been tested on animals. And I do feel like it's kind of a shove it in your face, like this is what yeah. they put them through. Do cutaways, man. Like, you know. I mean, you don't. You don't see a lot. I do feel like... Because I know what you're saying, but I've seen far worse in other stuff. A lot of it is kind of like operating table stuff. So it's just like... You'll just see like the chest open and them doing like the heart transplant and stuff. I think after like three or four episodes of it, I just got a bit like, come on, man, are we seriously still fucking doing this? And like every episode... Um, and then you are right, after like the fourth episode, like they basically stopped doing and it. And the fourth, both in episode two, three and episode four, my god, do they get their fucking revenge. So, at least there's that upside if the animals do get to take their revenge. Mm. But yeah, I was just a bit like... 
like <clears throat> I don't know because again from what I have seen of Mike Flanagan's work and the things of his work that I loved this seemed like the most unpleasant of his work and I think that was kind of like at least with most of his stuff you have a character or characters that you sympathize with that you empathize with that you want to root for that like you that grounds the story in a like emotional way there was one character in this that maybe i felt any sympathy towards and that was annabelle because she fucking like because of her situation but this this is probably the least likable ensemble like of characters that he's ever put together and I just think there's something like way more nihilistic about this, which I think is what See? stops me from going. Yeah, I kind of disagree with that. I knew you would. You've disagreed with everything else I've said I will. so far. But so. I do feel like you have Lenore, a Annabelle Lee. You are very much correct. Um... I mean, Lenore's such a non-entity until the last couple of episodes. But she, she's still a sympathetic yeah, character, yeah. especially when you figure out that she is also going to die. I kind and of she is like the one good member of the family. She's the only person who sees what they're doing and goes, this is wrong. Well, to be honest, I thought the reveal that came at the end of the episode was going to be the reveal of what she was all along. I kind of assumed that she was already dead and that she was a robot throughout the series. Like, I kind of always assumed that. No. But, like, because obviously at the end, spoilers, they reveal that she, that she's dead, but an AI bot of her. And they because they kept referencing it through the show, I was like, oh, okay, we're just going to get to the end of the episode and you're going to realise that she was a fucking robot the whole time. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Bilty? Ah, fuck Bilt. Bilt? Oh, do you know what? Like, he's mostly a non-entity, but I do... I feel for him because of the way um, his wife repeatedly treats him. Yeah, like, that relationship's weird, man. It's so odd. His, his, I don't really get an explanation for it. Uh, Morella. His wife's like, I don't want to be intimate with you, so I just pay other people to be to intimate like with me. you. So you get what you need. Yeah. And then does she, like, it's implied that she wanks over it, maybe? I don't yeah. know. It's very fucking strange. Uh, Morel. <clears throat> Who's that? Eleanor's uh, mum. Yeah. I mean, oh, I have so much like. I she was so she was about to go and fuck her. her brother-in-law at a party. Like, well, eh. I mean, she, yeah, but she, she didn't deserve what happened to her, and she definitely didn't deserve what happens in the last couple of episodes. Okay, okay, she does in one instance, and she doesn't in the other. Like, if she hadn't gone to the party, like that wouldn't have happened to her. So that kind of is on her. Like, she was like, yeah, man, I'll go to this exclusive party Well, the and thing cheat is, though, husband. is what I find really interesting is Verna does try and get her to leave as well. Yeah. She even says to but her, she's... leave. But she's not quick enough to turn around and go because she's yeah. confused as to where the voice is coming from. Yeah. That but... she then gets trapped in there. So she was <coughs> never supposed well, to I be always, I always thought that that scene played differently. I thought that scene was her refusing to leave because she was like, no, I'm not leaving here until I've had sex with this kid. Well, no, because if you think when she hears the voice, she's kind of looking around like, what? what on mm. earth and then she watches all of the bar people leave yeah. and she's like what what is happening yeah so i do feel i feel sorry for her because she was never supposed to be there in the first place and because of the confusion over what was happening she lost her chance mate, to leave mate don't word it like that she was never it's not like she was fucking held hostage she went there of her own accord no 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 no, no. i mean she wasn't supposed to be in the building when the acid dropped yeah babe. i know but like 
She was like, I agree with the second part. I agree with everything that ha- that happens to her after that is horrible and unnecessary. But I can't feel sympathy for what happened and to her in the warehouse. Also, I, I don't know if sympathetic is the right word, but I do feel <clears throat> for Juno. I mean, yeah. But she gets everything in the end. She destroys it. Yeah, I know, but she still gets it. Yeah, but she basically was a trophy bride who her husband kept her high on highly addictive opioids to prove that they weren't a danger yeah. and worked. Yeah. And to, to tie and it all she back was in. Already, I, th- I think it's implied she was already a drug addict before yeah. he got her addicted to... Yes, he was. She was, sorry. Uh, and to tie it all back in, he does... Uh, refer to himself as Victor Frankenstein at one point. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, that's another thing that I... Um, that kind of... that's a, This is going to sound like a real nitpick, but this is another thing that kind of did bug me about the show, is obviously it has the ending where it all ends and you all find out what's happened. But you never find out what happened to Bill. You never find out what happens to Lenore. Uh, or Lenore's mum. You never find... Yeah. Like, yeah, you never find out what happens to either of them. Like... Mm. You never find out what happens to Jules. Like, you know, these people who were, like, largely tied to this... Well, Jules didn't exist as far as his dad and aunt were concerned. I think the only person who knew he was... People he knew was dating Jules were his siblings. Yeah. So there's no reason he would show back up. Bilty and... Marilla. Marilla, no... No, Marilla is uh, Frederick's wife. Yeah. No. So his wife had broke up. Mm-hmm. So she was like, fuck you, we're, at, we're over. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, yeah, but what I'm saying is, like, I understand. Like, you're telling me what happened to them. Like, as the story goes, yeah. I get that. But what I'm saying is, after they all died, it would be nice to know how they moved on with that. But they're, they're, the whole point of it is that it is the story of the House of Usher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to go and then go... Oh, and so these people lived happily ever after. It no. doesn't matter because they're not mm. ushers. It has not, like, they are extraneous to the plot. They don't yeah. actually matter. But they are still people that were intrinsically linked in this family's lives. And you would think that having all of those people wiped out at once and, like, the guilt and things of knowing what they knew about that family, it would have been nice, even just as a written fucking epilogue, to be, like, in the aftermath of the fall of the House of Usher, like, Bill, like, you know, See- took... Blah, blah, blah. I do feel like this is where me and you differ quite regularly, is I don't care what happened to those characters. Mate, I spent eight goddamn hours watching this show. Like, I care about the fates of all those characters. The (laughs) the way they wrap it up of... um, We know what happens to Morella anyway, because um, Verna tells Lenore. Uh, Obviously, Juno inherits everything and tears the company apart. She turns it into a rehab place, Turns it into a rehab place and Pim goes to prison and will die in prison. Yeah. That was enough for me. Because in all honesty, I didn't really care what happened to anyone outside the family. Mm. I was mostly intrigued as to... The whole thing for me was just like, how are they all going to die? Like, what what is going to happen? Yeah. But also... What has led to this chain of events? So, um, the minute the reveal <clears throat> happened, if they'd made this bargain with Verna, fucking fifty years ago, or whatever it is, maybe forty-three years ago, uh, and that's why this is all happening. That was like the big thing for me. Was I wanted to know why, and I also kind of wanted to know 
uh, what Dupin did afterwards. Yeah. Because he's the other integral character and he's the sole survivor, if you really think about it, of what went down. Mm. I think the thing is, like, I mean... It does, it didn't really ruin my enjoyment of the show not knowing what happened to those characters. But I think this is one of these things like when you see like these rich and famous families or these crime families or like whatever, like the people that were involved with them or got away from them are always kind of like thought of as an afterthought. Mm. And you know you spend enough time with these characters that you kind of go, oh, actually, like do I feel sorry for Bill? I don't know, man. Do gets to you know have a pretty sweet life? I think all things considered. Mm. And I was like, but it would be nice to just know, like, you know, they were treated like shit by this family for so long and kept on by this family as, like, trophies or prizes or, like, mm. whatever. Like, it would be nice to just know that kind of thing of, like, what actually did happen to them afterwards. Because mm. <clears throat> how do you move on from something like that, like, as a human being? Like, yeah. if you're the one left or, yeah. like, the people that are left. But if you can't tell from my defence, uh, this is my favourite uh, that what? we watched. Why did you like this more than Midnight Mass? So Midnight, I enjoyed Midnight Mass. I really did, but also I found it quite dry. I think is the word I'm looking for. There was a lot of straight up <coughs> monologuing in Midnight Mass, mm. whereas I do feel like that's missing from this show. There is not as much monologuing as appears in Midnight Mass. And also, like, I don't really have a huge amount of religious trauma, so a lot of it I was like, okay, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Whereas I'm a huge fan of Poe's work, so a lot of this made much more sense to me than, like, all of the religious stuff in Midnight Mass. And also, like, you saying, like, you didn't, there wasn't that many redeemable characters in this, I don't remember actually liking any of the characters in Midnight Mass. Um, Zach Guilford's character, Riley. Um... Yeah, he was a dick, though. He wasn't, he wasn't. Like, I think towards the end, like, the scenes with him and Kate Siegel, yeah. where they're on the boat and but stuff. But I do, I think part of the reason I like this more is because I like the more supernatural... This is a much more straight-up, it's a supernatural show, whereas Midnight Mass is like, it's religious trauma, it's religious trauma, it's religious trauma, no, it's vampires. And I'm like, bitch, what? <laughs> Spoilers if you haven't seen Midnight Mass. Oh, yeah, if you haven't seen Midnight Mass, sorry for that. I mean, I don't want to give you much away. Um... But yeah. do you know what I mean? It's kind of a bit like, okay, and... I think I think this is good. Like, I think the great thing about this show is, like, you don't have to have read any of Edgar Allan Poe's work for the show to work. No. Like, I think it does... If you have read Poe's work, it does uh, give you more because you will be watching it going, oh, like, I know that name, or, oh, like, I recognise that line of dialogue, or... Oh, like they're referencing like this niche book, mm. like that you know exists. Or but even whatever. like the silly things, like you noticed the colours, didn't you? Yeah. Well, so every time anyone dies, there's like a specific colour palette for each of the characters. So after I think about the first four episodes, I was like, oh my god, are they the each of them one of the rooms from the Mask of Red Death? They're not. Because I did go and lick it but up. it feels like it's a riff on that. But it does feel much like it is a riff on, like, each of them have a colour specific. Because most of the colours are represented in The Mask of Red Death, but mm. you pick up stuff like that, and, like, everyone having their own colour palette. 
but there are so many little nods and everything to Poe's work. Like, I think if you are a fan of his work and you're like you, it's something you've read a lot of and quite enjoy, you do get slightly more from the show because you do spend the time going, oh, like I reference recognize like that one tiny reference, like hidden in the background. Like even when in the Raven, when uh, when he's in the living room mm. and the Raven comes and sits upon the bust, so that is a direct line in the poem um i think it's a portella bust and that bust that's there is the actual bust that is referenced in the poem Mm -hmm. that the raven is sat upon above the door and it's sat there that's the bust that's on the mantelpiece that the raven then goes and sits on and it's stuff like that like you're like there's a lot of like little direct references to like certain lines of dialogue or like certain things like imagery that references exact lines from Poe's work that I do feel like you do get get slightly more from having read his work beforehand. Mm. But you don't have to have. I think that's the <coughs> thing. You don't have to have read Poe's work because it's not integral. You know the stories. Yeah. To enjoy the show. I would I would be fascinated to know, though, now that I'm aware of, like, the colour palette thing, to kind of go back and see if there's any earlier sequences in the show with those characters in where those, those specific colours are more prominent. Well, like whether Cam- they're wearing them yeah. or if they're in like scenes with Camille's that colour. Camille's colour, I think, is white in actual fact. It matches her hair. Uh, it matches the outfit she wears quite regularly as well because mm. she's normally wearing white. And I think we'd probably find that if we went back and rewatched it, the characters like have a signature colour that we just hadn't picked up on before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Was yeah. like, because like Prospero's car is red. Yeah, and his color is red. The suit he's wearing is red as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, like uh, the main suit he wears throughout the show is red. Uh, like through the episodes he's in, should I say? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like specific references. And I do feel like we would catch it now, going back and watching him, going like, oh yeah, each character does have like a distinctive color palette. Yeah. It, it, yeah. And that's a Flanagan thing, though. That's like an attention to detail yeah. thing. That because that fucking guy is a genius. Mm. Uh, what did you think of the performances in this? Before we wrap this up, oh, do you know what? There's not a single performance I would complain about. I thought they were all fantastic, um, even down to like I fucking despise Prospero. I can't. I couldn't stand him. I found him endlessly irritating. But I think that's exactly what you're supposed to feel about that character. And I think the kid who played him, I say kid, he's probably like my age or maybe like a few years yeah. younger than me, um, was really fucking good because I despised him. I despised all of them. Even uh, Rahul Kool at Collier, I adore. And I follow on Instagram. He's a fucking laugh riot to follow on Insta. Uh, I fucking despise him in this. He's a proper dickhead. He is. It is true. So I th- they were all fantastic. How about you? Um, there was a couple that I was a bit like on the fence about. Okay. Um, I I didn't enjoy Zach Guilford in this because he's just like I'm sad. He just he just sad Alex Turner from the He's like, oh, I'm a scummy man. <laughs> um, I thought Willa Fitzgerald was fucking great as young Madeline. I think every scene that she's in is a fucking winner. And the only thing I'd seen her in previous to this was the Scream TV series, and she's doing a lot better work in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Bruce Greenwood is great. I think he's always fucking great, though. Like He plays 
Gerald or yeah in Gerald's game mm-hmm. it's him and Carlo Gugino as husband and wife uh-huh. and they're fucking both great in that she's fucking amazing in this I mean like, I've never seen anything with Carlo Gugino in there she's not fucking phenomenal uh she's been in shit films but she's always good in them yeah. like Sucker Punch fuck right off she's one of the best things in a I love I, I love Sucker Punch I won't hear a bad word against it um and she's but she works with like she's worked with Zack Snyder quite frequently because she's in obviously watchmen and stuff um she's really good in it i think all of the kids barring like one or two are very good um i don't like the girl who plays juno but then she fucking got on my tits in the two episodes of midnight club that we watched i just don't think she's a particularly good actress and she has this thing where she like plays whatever part is that she's playing she's just like a small angry irish girl who shouts a lot. And I was like, there's a couple of scenes in this where she's actually really good. Like the scene where she confronts him at the end and he admits that like, he basically scraped her off the floor and created her from nothing. She's really fucking good in that sequence. But like everything else, she just is very one note, very like bratty child. Um, Obviously the guy who plays Bilt, I don't think is a very good actor. Um, And like a couple of the siblings, like the girl who plays... Victorine I didn't think was that good in this the only episode where she comes into her own is the episode of the Telltale Heart because it's her episode Mm. but up until that point I I didn't find her to be particularly interesting Prospero is another character who I was like I'm really fucking glad this cunt's gonna die first because I just fucking hated him but like outside of that I thought everybody else was very very good like either very good to great in it but I think that's some... But the, the Prospero thing, though, like, I'm assuming the guy who plays him is just a lovely dude. Probably. And, like, that's the sign of it. Like, I fucking... I hated him. He was a proper annoying little cunt. Mm. But to me, I'm like, that's probably because you're very good at acting and you've made me yeah. hate you a really good job. Yeah. Henry Thomas is always reliably good in everything. Yeah. Um, I thought he was very good in this as well. But, yeah, it's one of those ones, like, I think if I probably go back and rewatch this in, like, six months' time, I my opinion might change on it. But I was like, the first few episodes really hooked me. And I was like, this is going to be fucking great. And then we got about halfway through and I was like, it started to kind of like lose its way a little bit towards the like end for me. And I was like, this hasn't gripped me like as much. Like we basically watched Midnight Mass in one sitting. And I was like, I I don't know if I could have watched all of this in one sitting and absorbed everything. Um, but I, don't... I mean, we did we did do six episodes. Five, the... five and three we did. Five and three. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. For me, I think it's still great because Mike Flanagan is really fucking good at what he does. I just think there was a couple of things missing that made this like, this would be box B rather than box C for me. <laughs> it's a true cult pop reference. Um, what would you rate it? What's your final... Because th- we are running out of time. What are your final thoughts and your score on this? Very quickly. Uh, honestly, I think this is going to be... and may stand as my favourite thing Flanagan's ever done. I think this may, in fact, be his masterwork. Until he does Dark Tower. I mean, I don't really give a shit about Stephen King's work, so we'll see. Um, oh, I think it's really well put together. I think the use of Poe's stories is fantastic. I think the modern- modernisation of all of them is great. I think the acting is phenomenal i honestly don't have a bad note and i'm going to give it a five okay it's my first five in a while um yeah i think 
I think the performances are great. I think the idea of remixing Edgar Allan Poe's like most famous works is really fucking interesting. I think the first couple of episodes are really interesting. Um, I think there are moments of greatness sprinkled throughout and nobody fucking does a, does a jump scare like Mike Flanagan other than James Wan. Like some of the jump scares in this are fucking terrifying and, you know, but there are obviously certain things that bring it down for me. I think like some of the episodes aren't as strong as the others. Like I could have really done without the animal stuff. And I just think that like it's his darkest and most nihilistic work. And I just don't find, I just didn't find any elements of hope in this one that I found in his other work. But with that said, for the most part, I enjoyed it. I don't think it's going to be top tier. Like, I don't think I'll be putting it in my top five Mike Flanagan things of, like, all time. But it's on Netflix. It's this one song from Netflix. And I would highly recommend anyone checks it out. Because even, like, not 100% Flanagan is still better than most people working today. I love the fact you basically went, nah, it's nihilistic. And I went, yay, nihilism. Hmm. But for me, it's a three. I'd give it a three out of five. Um, I still think Midnight Mass is... Um, so yeah, that's our thoughts on Frankenstein and also on the new Mike Flanagan show, uh, The Fall of the House of Usher. Um, as always, guys, join us. We will be back on Friday with a, our Cross in the Stream where we will be looking at Beyond the Gates. Um, and we will be back next Monday looking at The Phantom of the Opera from the 1920s. As always, guys, stay spooky, stay safe, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.